Hey guys, I'm Alex and this is Lunchbox Radio and this week we're talking about one of my favorite anime movies of all times, Princess Mononoke. Now, whenever anybody mentions Studio Ghibli, everybody has a definite opinion about it. It's like it's probably the in lots of people's minds the pinnacle of what a anime of what a movie studio for anime looks like and they but in reality they produced a super wide range of movies at varying qualities you have things like Spirited Away which is widely regarded rightfully as a masterpiece and then on this from the same studio not from the same director but from the same studio you have things like uh, "Up on Pop" from "Up on Poppy Hill" or um, "Tales from Earthsea," which are actually from Goro Miyazaki, uh, Hayao Miyazaki's son. And those those movies are like, it's not that they're well. "Tales from Earthsea" is I've never seen it, but it's not it's not supposed to be good. But from "Up on Poppy Hill" is. I've seen I've seen most of it. It's just kind of aimless. So before anybody tells you that Studio Ghibli is the end all be all of movies of of anime movies or anime as an art form, that's not really true. They they release all kinds of move all kinds of movies in. A wide range of quality, but the thi- one of the things they do do is they try to pick bigger overarching themes within their within their movies to fo- to focus on. Sometimes it's family, sometimes it's war, sometimes it's creativity. Um, if you want a great weird ride. Of a movie that really shows kind of creativity as a compulsion and as a almost a disease. Um, go watch The Wind Rises, and if you haven't, and if you see that movie, and like, what are you talking about, Alex? If you think about the main character in that movie, the I forget his name, but he's supposed to be the guy who designed the first the Japanese bomber that became the like primary plane for kamikaze pilots in World War Two. He is so driven by his need to create like this plane and like what he needs to do to make that that he lets his Wife die, not un not unnoticed, but un mostly unpaid attention to. And if you know anything about Hayao Miyazaki, uh, that isn't far from the truth of who he is. He is an amazing artor and director and animator, but he is distant from others because he is always in his own head and always in like 
in the idea of like thinking about something that he wants to create and thinking about the way things work and that's a very that's a very old school animator way to be and combine that with the like storytelling head of a director and you kind of you're off to the races in that respect if you want a great kind of peek into a little bit of the way his mind probably works go check out the kingdom of dreams and madness which is a whole documentary about Hayao Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli and ultimately at the end of that it kind of the movie culminates with him announcing which of course we now know he didn't stay in retirement for long announcing he was retiring but in that scene directly in the scene directly after he announces he's retiring you see him talking about the rooftops of the buildings outside of this hotel where they have hold, held a bunch of their press conferences. And he talks about, I think it was, he talked about, actually, Princess Mononoke and the scene where they have Ashitaka running along the roof. And he says, you know, I've seen these rooftops a bunch of times. And the more I look at them, the more I realize, like, that's where I got that scene from. And, like, I can imagine that character like jumping from roof to roof on different levels and that's a very the un, like an an uncontained creativity is very common for animators and people who watch anime but they don't practice it or they've never learned animation also have this to some extent because you're presented with tons of fantastical worlds all the time like multiple worlds per every couple months you're just asked like here's this thing spend time in it um but probably the first anime thing I ever saw as a person was Princess Mononoke. My mom brought it home for me one night from the library when I was 11 or 10, when I was like, couldn't have been, I couldn't have been older than 13. And she said, Alex, they had this at the library. Let's watch it. And I was absolutely all in for it. A cartoon movie. And it's it's rare. It's not rare for me to watch something that affects me. But it's rare for me to watch something that I feel like changes me somehow. And Princess Mononoke definitely did that for me. It is kind of it is a conversation about a very serious topic presented in a way where it is not abstracted and it is impossible to abstract away from it and it attempts to grapple with all of the different sides of that problem and topic 
and for those of you who haven't seen the movie, it's really, it's talking about the environment and preserving the environment, but what it means to live and preserve the environment. So, the movie opens up and you see this beautiful forest scene and this deep voice comes over and talks about, like, nature and the forest and the woods and the gods. And then you get this, like, kind of almost... Pocahontas-esque, but with, like, deeper, more... affecting music title card. And then it pulls away from the title card, and you're presented with this giant monster that seems like it's made out of, like, a a billion moving slugs. And it decides to attack this village. And you see, and at that point you see the kind of the the main character, the main character that you will be with for the rest of the movie. The, the character who will be, who the, who the audience will travel with for the rest of the movie, and that's Ashitaka. Ashitaka is the la- is basically the last prince of this ancient trot of this ancient Japanese tribe called the Amishi. And he fights the thing to def- he defends the village and in doing so his right arm is cursed. And he ha- and so the, like, village elder woman comes over, she tells this giant, what was at one point a giant boar, who basically told them, you're all going to die anyway, I'm ca- I'm officially bequeathing a curse on you, um, but she called she refers to it as a as a nameless god of hate and rage which is really which is really fascinating which for reasons that we'll get to in a little bit but so they Ashitaka's arm is cursed later at later in at night in the village she presents the, him with an iron with an iron ball, which you learn later is basically a musket shot. And she says, "We recovered this from the boar." She basically says, "We recovered this from the boar." You have like you. This is what this is what poisoned him, and turned him into a demon. But then you, but the, and then she says, we can't, like, we can't fix, we as a people cannot fix this curse. It is beyond us. But you can rise to meet the challenge, essentially is what she says. But 
you can't do it. <clears throat> you can't do it and return here. So if if you leave the village, you're gone for good. And the movie does a good job of setting up just enough interpersonal relationship by this point so you realize, like, he does this, but it's not something necessarily to be taken lightly. He's essentially, when he leaves the village, when Ashitaka leaves his village and cuts off his hair, he's making a big choice. He's making a big choice because he wants to not not only make sure that it's, nothing bad comes to him, but whatever bad is out there is clearly affecting the world and nature so much that it is spreading beyond its capacity to control it or what it understood would happen. So, he leaves, he leaves his village, and there's a whole, there's a small scene with his younger sister, um, and then you're greeted with (coughs) this kind of expanse of these gorgeously animated scenes where he's just riding through nature and he's riding through like rolling hills and blowing grass and the woods and then he comes across this pack of samurais who are terrorizing these like farmers and you're presented with the first that's at that point that's the first human representation that you've had through who aren't the Amishi people the Amishi people are just kind of like villagers they keep to themselves now you're presented with these rope with these roving samurai who are harassing the villagers basically to kill them and take everything they own. What's interesting here is that the... people that are presented are not... good. They're... It presents uh, this more... More com- a more complex humanity in a worse life, in a worse light. These soldiers have armor. Have armor. They have. They clearly have money, but they have gone bad somehow. And that's just that is that scene is doesn't have a place in the overall story necessarily, but it, what it does do is it shows you basically what. Ashitaka's curse does to the world around him. Because he says, okay, I need to defend these people. I need to leave them alone. And the second he draws an arrow, his arm basically flares up, almost like it like 
it's like it's like the whole of the contents of his arm are bo- are boiling under the skin. And then he shoots an arrow. And the guy's arms come clean off. Both of his arms clean off like they were hit with a meat cleaver. And the other warriors are like, Oh my god, this guy's dangerous. We need to kill him. So (laughs) one of them goes towards him and he shoots another arrow takes the guy's head clean off his shoulders. Once again, like a meat cleaver, like a hot meat cleaver through butter. Nothing. And they immediately just are like, oh, oh, we need to go. He's a demon. <laughs> and so, he goes about his way. They leave the farmers alone, like the conflict is dealt with. And he... He realizes I'm dangerous. Like I, but he he has a I am the danger moment. What is happening to me? And then you move along, and he comes across a village, and he gets and he gets some and he basically wants to get some rice, but he doesn't. He doesn't have any like concrete money the way that. That you think that the rest of society around the Amici people would. So he offers up like a small piece of pure gold. Because that's what they used to pay for things. And the the rice seller, the woman selling the rice, is like, hey... Don't you pull this bullshit on me. Don't give me this shiny rock. And what's interesting here is that... That's the first time... You meet a... That's the first time you meet a female character outside of... Um... The Amishi people. And the, the, the constant theme that runs through this movie... Is that... Other than Ashitaka, all of the other characters of ev- of any real imp- importance who have true agency and power and deci- and like decision making skills are, with the exception of one, who we'll meet in a second. Um. Are women. So, the majority of the cast is women. The majority of the characters in control of a situation at any one point are women. And it's just, it's really interesting because it is a movie that posits this idea of different matriarchal societies and different matriarchal um, positions. Like, everything from the wise woman from the Amishi people to the rice seller to the women of Irontown to Lady of Boshi 
are all demonstrations of competent, powerful women who who exist on their own plane without without need for help from a man and the and in case you missed that in case you got through this movie without noticing like oh that's the viewpoint that this movie takes later on lady aboshi makes it very clear <laughs> like very clear no we don't need men's help they're allowed to exist, but they are useless. Um, but so, he, he then, le- like, but when he's getting the rice, the woman's like, don't give me this shiny rock bullshit. A monk butts in. I think his name is Donzo. But he, I, I've always, I've, I've seen this in English and Japanese. I prefer the English voice acted version. I prefer the dub version, largely because of Billy Bob Thornton. Um, Billy Bob Thornton plays the monk, and Billy Bob Thornton's character basically steps in and is like, "I'll take this off your hands. It's a lump of pure gold," and he's. He's like, is there any money changer who can tell me how much this is worth? And, but he also does something that I find really interesting. He goes, he first refers to her, like, I'll take that off your hands, you silly woman. As if he is saying, you don't know the value of things. How could you? You're a woman. And that's your first real... hint to like the space he occupies in the story but then he but then he basically so he goes we've got your rice and now you're all good and they'll leave it and but as they're leaving or as Ashtak is leaving and um Billy Bob Thornton's character catches up to him is he gives the rice line and they realize they're being followed. And so they run they run off and they eventually come to a place where they're camping and he go and Billy Bob Thornton's character takes his like, Oh, give me a bowl and I'll serve you some rice. And he goes Uh, and when he gets the ball, he goes, beautiful ball. I've seen one other like it. And he sa- basically says, I know where you're from. <laughs> and he's like, but why are you all the way out here? Ashtaka gives him the story. And then Billy Bob Thornton delivers what I think is probably one of the better... It's probably the best speech in the movie, which is, he tells Ashitaka, look around. Last time I was here, this was a gorgeous, and I'm not doing it word for word, I wouldn't do it justice, but he said, look around. Last time I was here, this was a beautiful village. 
And as for what happened to it, who knows? But then he basically says, you know, there's war, famine, disease, violence, angry, and I think the exact phrase he says at the end is, angry spirits all around us, and nobody cares. So you say you're under a curse? Well, so is the whole damn world. And it... It presents this very stark reality that that character understands that the world has kind of gone to hell. Or or is in the process of going to hell somehow. And what does that mean about that character? So, after that, he leaves and eventually he finds a man in the river who is terrified and injured and he's terrified of these like creatures who are just like the most adorable little but also creepy creepy little ghost ghost clay ghost babies you've ever seen in your life and they are and they are essentially tree spirits And Ashitaka says, they're not bad, they're just like the fun little things that mean that this forest is really healthy and thriving. And then you're introduced to kind of the main god of the world, which is the forest spirit. And at some point you're also introduced to the to the other gods, like the boar god, the, um, the wolf god, the, all these other, all these other, like, god creatures. Actually, I think it's only the boar and the wolf. But the forest spirit is unique because it's this big deer. It's like a nine million point buck with a fancy, like, mask on its face. Um... And it is, it, at night, it also transforms into the Nightwalker, which is this big ghost apparition thing that wanders the forest, killing everything it steps on. And the idea of this creature is that it both gives... And takes life. Um, and I think at that point you're also well. Before that, you meet um, the Saul, the the wolf girl, and her siblings, who are actual wolves, and. Maro, who is their mother. So on the wolf girl, basically, it's a little girl who is abandoned, raised by wolves, literally, and is this... It is is the title character. She is Princess Mononoke, and she is 
basically this pr- this human princess of the kingdom of nature. And they are basically injured in a fight with the, like, r- with the rice ration convoy of Lady Eboshi, who, r- who you later find out runs Iron Town. And Iron Town is this big iron mill, iron ore mine. And she is slow, and that is expanding fairly quickly out from itself and through nature, and she is destroying the world as she she's basically raping the land as she goes along. But she also has produced firearms, meaning guns, in by the truckload. And she is this very clearly confident character who is really motivated by not greed, but profit. She wants to make enough to be able to afford to live without a man's rule. And they they never under... They never really explain that but if you look at the way women in Japanese culture especially his Japanese history are treated you can it's easy to it's easy to get to the oh this makes sense this is this is why a woman a Japanese woman might eventually get to Men are necessary, but not to be indulged. And so that sets up the kind of primary conflict, and what you, and who you, and who you think will be at that point will be the bad guy and the good guy. Meaning, you, it becomes clear that Ashitaka is in the middle of a fight between nature and mankind. And the entire movie explores the kind of gradient of, you know, is man good for nature? Is nature good for man? And it's just all very, very, very fascinating. And at the same time, it explores what it means to be a man or a woman and what those gender and like what those genders think of each other and all that stuff but it's just, it's in the same way that the ancient magus bride has a serious affinity for and respect for nature Princess Mononoke does too. It's it's a rare breed of anime that doesn't just seek to ask the viewer like you should respect nature because of this. It shows you like 
this is what nature looks like in full swing and full bloom. This is what it's capable of. And it's also clearly very important to the director who made it, Hayao Miyazaki. Hayao Miyazaki has for decades railed against nuclear power. Like, he believes that's an inherent evil. Um, but thanks for sitting with me through this long winding like exploration of Princess Mononoke. If you haven't seen it, I highly suggest you do. Um, if you like this podcast, please sub- like and please subscribe to it. Uh, share it with your friends. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex Cohan. That's on the uh, cover art. I'm sorry if this was a little of an odd episode. I had to record it quickly because yesterday was Thanksgiving. Um, but, uh, definitely check back next week when I will be back with uh, another episode. Till then, talk to you later. Oh my god.